I'm very glad to see a room packed full of people. It shows a lot of interest in complementary and alternative medicine, as it's called, out in the world. But I would like to make a disclaimer for complementary and alternative medicine, as it's called. The original complementary and alternative medicine was invented by God, and the world has turned it around and called it CAM. When in reality, God's plan calls for many of the things we're going to be talking about, and the world has substituted it with other things. So really, um, it's kind of backwards. And we need the Lord's help this morning, so can we pray just for a moment, please? Father in heaven, thank you for such a wonderful group here at Amen, and we pray that you'll bless as we speak today, that just the right words will be said that will reflect your glory, and we thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. This will be fairly fast-paced because there's a lot of ground to cover, and we hope that you enjoy it. There will be tapes available from, or DVDs available from Audioverse. If you want the slides, I can give them to you without the pictures. If you will sign up your name over there, there's a sign-up sheet for email and addresses and cell phones and so on. And we can send them to you without the pictures because, as you realize, many of the pictures are copyrighted. And if you wanted to put the program together, then you would need to come up with your own pictures, unfortunately. And I want to give credit to my secretary, Sherry Neuro, who was going to be a veterinarian. She's from South Africa, and she spent many long, hard hours helping me put this PowerPoint together. She's a wonderful researcher, and we did a lot of it together, but she did a lot of it to help me. And I want to point out some useful complementary and alternative medicine websites. They're not actually that. This is a list of websites for anybody that wants to copy it that I just discovered recently. It's a treasure trove of information from manufacturers around the world. And these manufacturing websites are uh, talking or giving articles about what they've researched into that is the best for this or this or this. And on here, on these websites are many, many, many uh, useful things to help in natural remedies. And an example is at the bottom, let's talk about turmeric or curcumin. And there's the website for curcumin for one reference alone under the Nutri-Ingredients site. And if you'll go, if you'll copy that one website, that will give you the uh, list of all these other websites at the bottom. And then you'll have links and more links and more links to follow if you're really interested in getting a lot of useful information about what's going on in the manufacturing world today that really gives us just all kinds of exciting ideas. And for instance, just the other day, I pulled all these articles just on turmeric alone and showing that slows melanoma growth in lab studies and uh, deadly turmeric supplements recalled. Why? Because some of them had contaminants in them, not because of the turmeric. Um, and they've approved it as a generally recognized as safe herb. It's not carcinogenic. It can help eyes. It can have antiarthritis potential. It may cut heart failure risk. It may boost breast health. It may help breast cancer and all kinds of wonderful things. Just on turmeric from these websites. Okay, useful complementary re remedies. The number of visits to providers of complementary and alternative medicine in the USA alone exceeds those to primary care physicians for annual out-of-pocket cost of $30 billion. It's growing every year. And a few years ago, there were hardly any of these things talked about. Even in med medical journals, you just didn't hear about it. And yet, just the other day, in the latest archives of internal medicine, comes an article about red yeast rice. 
we're hearing more and more about red yeast rice, um, about other herbs, other useful complementary remedies in uh, well-recognized medical journals. And this was actually quite interesting in that it was pointing out that red yeast rice has several components and it's also found to be sometimes not as in the red yeast rice products that they make as a substitute for lavastatin because it is lavastatin that some of these are unstandardized and there's varying amounts of the lavastatin and other monocolons, the active ingredient of red, red yeast rice, in the different uh, companies that produce this. So standardization is still a problem in the herbal world. And 80% of the world's population relies on natural medicines according to World Health Organization estimates. Wherever you go as missionaries in the world, you're going to run into many, many people that actually depend on local herbs, local products to help them get through illness. And so it behooves us to look into what is used here in this country in our practice and know more about it. Health food store clerks may know more about what is being used by patients, by clients, than we do if we don't take a good history. And they were interviewed and many people could get more information out of the health food clerks than they could out of their doctors. And more than 75% of pregnant women using herbal remedies during pregnancy didn't tell their doctors or their midwives that they were taking these herbs. So we have to ask. 25% of patients in internal medicine wards consume some kind of herbal or dietary supplements. And in one study, the medical team was aware of the consumption in only 23% of the cases. And there can be herb-drug interactions. So if a patient is on a number of drugs, and one they found particularly interesting was chamomile tea with cyclosporin, which is um, a type of chemotherapy. And chamomile tea is commonly used all through Latin America and America, particularly in the Hispanic world. And so it's very important to get an herbal history. I want to tell you just briefly about my experience. And this happened about 20 years ago. I was working in an urgent care center in Chattanooga, uh, moonlighting a little bit. And a lady came in, a young lady, with a rash all over her body. She'd had fever and malaise for several days and had just broken out in this terrible rash. It looked like measles. And she really was upset because she didn't know what was going on. Well, I thought I got a good history. I thought I gave her good home instructions to go see her doctor the next day. She'd seen eight years later, I got a subpoena from two different lawyers. And this lady had seen over 100 doctors in the interim, and she turned out to be the first case of eosinophilia myalgia syndrome found from L-tryptophan on the East Coast. And it turned out that there were 60,000 people that got sick and 37 died, and it's a, um, a disease complex that ends up being something like scleroderma, where there's some hardening of different organs, and they have chronic illness. Sometimes for many years it never goes away in many cases. Sometimes steroids help, sometimes it doesn't. So that taught me a really good lesson. I thought I got a good history. Of course, in that case, it wouldn't have helped because I wouldn't have known what to do anyway. But it's just a lesson for us that if this um, lady had perhaps told me that she was on this L-tryptophan, 
We might have investigated, we might not have at that time because not much was known about it. Anyway, the company in Japan, the Shoadenka company that made the L-tryptophan was subsequently found to have contaminated L-tryptophan with other contaminants and that's what was causing the illness. And finally, in 1991, after she had been damaged and ill for several years and became permanently ill, they, the FDA approved um, or actually banned tryptophan for some years and several years later it was reinstated once they were sure that there were no contaminants in it. So we do have to be careful what we accept in the complementary and alternative medicine world. For Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil and he shall recover. There are many forgotten prescriptions and we're going to go through several slides quickly on some of the simple prescriptions that God has given us through the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And actually the National Institutes of Health did a study with pharmaceutical organizations. They studied the case history of Hezekiah and said, let's look at figs. And they, they came up with some interesting conclusions that there are many medicinal qualities to figs. And they actually thought that maybe Hezekiah had anthrax. This was done and Hezekiah was restored to health. It would be well, Mrs. White says, to treasure this prescription which the Lord ordered to be used more than we do. A cup of catnip tea will quiet the nerves. And it has been studied in catnip tea and although excite, exciting for cats, for people, it is very calming to the nerves. And we usually make a tea with two or three tablespoons of the herb to a quart of boiling water, steep it, for 20 minutes and then say to the patient, drink three or four cups a day. Now remember that catnip is <clears throat> actually, I was thinking of chamomile. Chamomile tea is wonderful for calming the nerves and for calming digestion as well. Chamomile is from the daisy family. So you have to even ask people, do you have any allergies when you give them even simple herbal teas? Because if you give chamomile tea and they're allergic to daisies, they can have an allergic reaction, maybe hay fever or sneezing or whatever. Hop tea, Mrs. White says, will induce sleep. And we often use hop tea at night for our patients with hop capsules. And we'll use a combination of catnip, hop, passion flower, and chamomile in the tea. And if they don't have reflux symptoms, maybe a little touch of peppermint to make it taste good. Because hops is quite bitter. But Lupulus is the ingredient in hops that makes it active. And we don't have time to go into all that, but hops is a very nice sedative. That's what makes people that drink beer get sleepy after it, because they make beer with hops. Light was given that there is health in the fragrance of the pine, the cedar, and the fir. Pine sap is wonderful for healing wounds. You can have a small laceration. If you ever go on a camp trip, have a little tiny bottle of pine sap. It's like $18 for an ounce. But you take this pine sap with you, you get some abrasions, you get some open lacerations, and just some tape and some pine sap, and you can butterfly it, and that will take the pain away, take any potential for infection away, and it will heal within it two, three days. It's wonderful for healing even large wounds if you have no resources to get to a doctor right away. Pine, just clean the wound really well first and then fill it with pine sap and butterfly it. And I, I could tell you some personal experiences from some friends of mine that had terrible, this man had a terrible injury from a car accident and his wife cleaned out the wounds 
and these huge lacerations on his head, neck, and ears healed beautifully with almost no scar with pine sap. When the head is congested, if the feet and limbs are put in a bath with a little mustard, relief will be obtained. And a simple hot foot bath is so helpful for headaches. It won't always help a migraine headache. And be careful with mustard, because mustard can burn the feet. So you want to use a little bit, not too much. Maybe a teaspoon or two, not two or three tablespoons. And hot poultices over the stomach will relieve pain. Now, is any research available to prove this? Not yet that I know of. It's anecdotal at this point. There are a few things in the spirit of prophecy that have not been scientifically proven, but prove it for yourself. As long as it's not a surgical abdomen, and maybe somebody has irritable bowel syndrome and a lot of crampiness and so on, um, try a hop poultice. How would you make a hop poultice? You can make some very strong hop tea and just leave the hops in it. That would be like four to six tablespoons of hops flowers into a quart of boiling water and let it steep 20 minutes and then use that in a poultice fashion with one of these um, blue under pads that you just open up the top and put it in there and let it soak up and just put it over the abdomen. Or if you're out in the boonies, you can just put it on some rags and put it on the abdomen and put a saran wrap or plastic over it and wrap it with an ace bandage. If the eyes are weak, if there's pain in the eyes or inflammation, soft flannel cloths wet in hot water and salt will bring relief quickly. It's amazing how many things there are that are so simple that will help a lot. The patients may be encouraged to spend much time out of doors and a place should be provided where in cooler weather the patients can sit in the sun without feeling the wind. I was born at New England Sanitarium and Hospital in Melrose, Mass, and I remember we visited there many times when I was a child. My mother was a nurse, my two aunts were nurses there, and I remember seeing patients out on the lawn with nurses tending to them back in those good old days. And this is something that all our sanitariums used to do is have the patients out on the lawn with nurses tending to them. In home sanitariums, this is still done a lot. Cheerfulness is a remedy. Did you ever think of that? Within and without the institution, pleasant words and kindly acts, these are the remedies that the sick need. And I cannot advise any remedy for cough better than eucalyptus and honey. Into a tumbler of boiled honey, put a few drops of the eucalyptus oil. Stir it up well and take whenever the cough comes on. The best time to take it is before retiring. Now we've added a little twist to that. We have several recipes for eucalyptus cough syrup at Wildwood, and I made up kind of my own. If children see something pink, it resonates with them. It looks like medicine. And also, it's known that onion and garlic have antiviral properties, antibacterial properties. So if you take a half a cup of lemon juice, fresh lemon juice, not this canned stuff, and a half a cup of honey, and blend about a quarter of a red onion. It'll make a nice pink syrup. And a three or four or five medium cloves of garlic, and blend that well. Then put it in a glass jar. Never put eucalyptus in a styrofoam cup. In a few hours, the styrofoam cup will all be gone at the bottom, and you'll have a mess. It dissolves it. It's powerful. And then you add your eucalyptus to the glass jar, to this mixture, anywhere from 30 to 50 drops. 50 drops is pretty strong 
but it's still tolerable. And then you can give uh, a child a half a teaspoon, quarter of a teaspoon of that every two or three hours and have them just hold it in their throat and it will help the cough. For an adult, you can give a half to a whole teaspoon every two or three hours. And eucalyptus has to be, I have to give a caution. For asthmatics, some asthmatics can't tolerate eucalyptus even as in a vaporizer. We use eucalyptus in a vaporizer quite often. And we make a tent. We get a vaporizer that has a little hot steam cup there. And we put either toilet paper or Kleenex or cotton to wick up in front of the vaporizer steam. And then we saturate it with eucalyptus oil. And that is wonderful if you're not allergic to eucalyptus. But if you have asthma, some people, it really chokes them up. Other people with respiratory infections, it's wonderful. Uh, just be cautious. Warm foot baths into which have been put the leaves from the eucalyptus tree, Mrs. White says. The oil of the eucalyptus is especially beneficial in cases of cough and pains in the chest and lungs. The Lord has provided antidotes for disease in simple plants. We're laying a foundation for some other things we're going to say. We all, I believe, have faith in the spirit of prophecy. And sometimes God has said things that we don't understand yet, but nonetheless, what he said is true. He can use water and sunshine and the herbs which he has caused to grow in healing maladies brought on by indiscretion or accident, like the pine sap. Now let's talk about a few foundational miscellaneous remedies, we'll call them. Perfect health depends upon perfect circulation. There's a science called rheology, which has to do with the circulation of red blood cells in the blood vessels. Fresh air and deep breathing, she says, acts as a tranquilizer. And physical, mental, and moral benefits of good posture. And they've actually done studies with posture showing that people have better mood, less spinal pain, less headaches, and uh, just feel better all over when they have better posture. And that includes me. Physical, uh, vocal training prevents weariness and disease. It was said that Mrs. White could be heard a mile away on a good day. She had learned to train her voice so that she spoke from the abdomen, and she did not need a microphone, and they didn't have any back then. There's a lot to be said about proper use of the voice, and there's a whole section of, in the Spirit of Prophecy about that. Hyperkyphotic posture in older patients is specifically associated with an increased rate of death due to atherosclerosis. Now, how in the world could that be? How could that be related? But it is. Here's um, a reference from the American Journal of Preventive Medicine in 1994. Spinal pain, headache, mood, blood pressure, pulse, and lung capacity are among the functions most easily influenced by posture. It appears that homeostasis and autonomic regulation are intimately connected with posture. So let's all sit up straight and stand up straight. The patient's environment. She speaks a lot of decayed vegetation on premises causing disease and damp beds and bedrooms resulting in rheumatism. And the only word they knew for different kinds of arthritis, and we know there's over 100 kinds now, was rheumatism. That was the word. Neuralgia and lung complaints. I lived in a moldy house at Wildwood several years ago. It was an old double wide that they finally tore up and took away. But this house had a lot of mold in it, and I was getting a lot of migraine headaches. And I complained to administration. I said, we've got to do something about this. And they did. They moved us to another house, to make a long story short. And my headaches choo, went way down. I was so thankful. And when they tore the walls off of my bedroom, 
our bedroom, it was amazing. That pink insulation was black with mold. And it had been leaking into this double wide. They've studied mold in the scientific world, and there's an awful lot of mold-related disease. Many die from disease, the cause of which is wholly imaginary. There's a strong mind-body connection. The will goes with the labor of the hands. And we know that this psychoneuroimmunology is a powerful field of study today. She also says disease is sometimes produced and is often greatly aggravated by the imagination. Many are lifelong invalids who might be well if they only thought so. And I could mention in connection with a patient I had several years ago with chronic fatigue sy syndrome, I tried and tried to get her out of bed to walk outdoors. And she said, uh-uh, that makes me worse. And she would only walk a few steps outdoors and then go back to bed. And she'd been in bed for several years. And gradually we tried to get her up and moving and get out in the fresh air and take some deep breaths. And we gave her hydrotherapy treatments, but we said, nothing's going to help you until you start exercising and getting the fresh air. And gradually she did, but she was very slow to take hold of that principle. Clove oil. Healing of anal fissures occurred in 60% of patients in the clove oil group. They used a 1% cream versus 12% of patients in the control group, which was 5% lidocaine cream, which is just numbing medicine, and stool softeners uh, after three months of follow-up. So clove oil. And I also know patients that have used Vicks Vapor Rub, which has several herbal remedies in it just for anal fissures. And within a few days, Vicks Vapor Rub will, it burns like fire, but it will heal up an anal fissure. <laughs> tea tree oil. And how many know about tea tree oil? Oh, only about a third of you. So some of these things hopefully are new. Tea tree oil comes from Australia and New Zealand. And it is a very powerful oil. It can be used for gargles, for skin conditions, for fungus, for many things. One study showed it had a five times greater affinity to bind to Staph aureus than eucalyptus oil. And many studies have been, been done on tea tree oil. Sometimes we'll make a mixture of tea tree oil and garlic oil, not pure garlic. Garlic can burn the skin. But there's a commercial garlic oil. And we'll mix a little tea tree oil with garlic oil and use it on fungal infections like toenails and, and uh, athlete's foot. Not so good for toenails. It takes a long time to heal up toenails. But athlete's foot, it's quite good for and other fungal infections on the skin. We've also used tea tree oil for gargles, like no more than five to 10 drops to eight to 10 ounces of water. It's very powerful, and you gargle with it, and you can spit it out. For a child, I wouldn't recommend swallowing. For an adult, I have swallowed it, and it's not bad. It just doesn't taste good. But it's wonderful. Gargle several times a day with tea tree oil. Um, we'll come some more to tea tree oil later. Grapefruit seed extract is a wonderful remedy, and many studies have been done about it. However, grapefruit seed extract, again, was found um, to combat many germs. It, in vitro results indicate that grapefruit seed extract has bactericidal effects against a wide range of gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. The experimental results show that GSC compares favorably to that of proven topical antibacterial, excuse me. Some years ago, I read a study about grapefruit seed extract and candida infection, vaginal infections, a um, mild douche using five to 10 drops of grapefruit seed extract to a whole quart of water. 
would help clear up vaginal yeast infections. But you have to be very careful with GSE. One drop on the tongue will burn it and swell your throat up and you'll be drooling for two or three days. It's very powerful. If you're going to gargle with it, which it makes a wonderful gargle for strep throat or other sore throats, both antiviral and antibacterial, you must put no more than five to 10 drops to eight to 10 ounces of water. The rule of thumb is one drop to one ounce if you're going to gargle with it because it's so strong. And you can gargle with it and drink it as a medicine, as a systemic antibacterial or antiviral two or three times a day. It's best when you mix it with grapefruit juice because it covers up the taste. And uh, it's also quite good mixed with soy milk, not bad. Glycerin, I've always thought glycerin was such a mild um, product, but yet it is quite helpful in barrier repair properties like atopic dermatitis and ichthyosis vulgaris. I just heard on the news the other day about a little girl that was five years old that was born with this ichthyosis skin which sheds itself many times a day and the parents have to, her skin is changing 14 times a day and the parents have to constantly keep applying different agents and they're struggling to find something that really works. Increased dermal hydration, it pulls water to the skin so it doesn't dry out as fast. It's, that's called hygroscopic. Winter and senile xerosis, dry skin in the winter, inherited ichthyosiform disorders and atopic skin diathesis, anti-irritant properties, irritant dermatitis, antimicrobial and wound healing properties evidenced in experimental research show promise. And we had a lady at Wildwood, an elderly lady in her 80s, with terribly dry skin and always getting infected and getting cellulitis and very fragile thin skin. And finally, glycerin is what helped the most. Just rubbing her legs two or three times a day with glycerin helped to moisten them up and keep them from getting so dry and irritated. Olive oil. Mrs. White speaks of olive oil. There's a whole bunch of references about olives in the Spirit of Prophecy. And of course, there's still contention whether she meant olives or olive oil. But nonetheless, there's a lot of research out in the scientific world about olives and olive oil. Oleocanthal from fresh pressed olive oil inhibits COX-1 and COX-2 in the same way as ibuprofen. It's not quite as abundant. You'd have to drink a cup of olive oil to cure a headache. <laughs> but nonetheless, if people eat olives regularly, they're getting similar properties as ibuprofen for anti-inflammatory purposes to suppress inflammation in the body, and that's useful to know. And olive um, leaf extract is very good for inflammatory things. Uh, you can get it in capsules, two capsules, three capsules, three times a day. Olive oil is uh, extremely soothing for dry skin as well. I was in Russia some years ago. We were doing a health expo and evangelistic series, and this man came to me and said, for six years I've had this terribly dry skin and I'm miserable. I said, get some olive oil. And after a bath, while you're still wet, rub the olive oil in. And he came to me a few nights later and he said, I'm cured. Oh, he was so happy. Olive oil polyphenols at nutritionally relevant concentrations transcriptionally inhibit endothelial adhesion molecule expression. And there's several polyphenols. There's olero, ole, olero, uh, ole, it's a 
funny word, oleropine and hydroxytyrosol and tyrosol. And these help lower cholesterol in the form of LDL as well as have anti-inflammatory effects. And uh, it's very, um, very thrilling to think that some of these remedies are so simple, just eating olives. In one place, Mrs. White says, if olives could be well used with every meal. And Dr. Bernal Baldwin, who's here at this Congress, he has done a lot of research on olives. And in our, in our Journal of Health and Healing, he published not too long ago an article on the use of olives. And he just made another article in the latest issue called Please Pass the Olives. Uh, that's a little plug for Journal of Health and Healing. Miscellaneous remedies like nasal flushing. I read in a medical journal, not, or a journal for lay people, but an article by an internist, a specialist in allergies about the neti pot, and he was strongly recommending it, putting saline, which is a teaspoon of salt to a pint of water, into one of these neti pots and rinsing your nose out if you have a lot of allergies. And you can do it two, three times a day, and the allergens are rinsed out, and it gives relief. And it's much better than using the drugs that addict your nose that you have to keep using and using. And it actually washes the allergens out. Ginger is a wonderful remedy, but you have to be careful with it. A lot has been studied in regard to ginger for morning sickness, for travel sickness, dizziness, and even tinnitus, the ringing in the ears. And usually, people can get relief for some of these things with one or two capsules of ginger, uh, maybe three times a day. But I tell people a maximum of no more than eight to 10 capsules of ginger a day in 24 hours because it can also irritate the stomach if you get too much. It is a spice. But it helps nausea and dizziness. And um, we couldn't find specifically the reference where the uh, OBGYN people are saying, yes, it's OK, but there's a lot of study been done on it. And generally speaking, it's OK to use it for pregnant women. And sleep-related gene transcripts are involved in brain protein synthesis, synaptic consolidation, <coughs> slash depression, and membrane trafficking and maintenance including cholesterol metabolism, myelin formation, and synaptic vesicle turnover. So any of us short on sleep? We need all these things. And growth hormone, not this reference, but other references mention that growth hormone is best produced before midnight. And Mrs. White says that two hours of sleep before midnight is worth four hours after midnight. Well, she didn't know about growth hormone. Growth hormone is produced best with outdoor vigorous exercise and sleep before midnight. So sleep is a natural remedy, and you can tell your patients that. It's a wonderful natural remedy. Generalized anxiety disorder. We're always looking for new tranquilizers, new calming, calming agents for the nerves. And um, I hope Dr. Nebney knows about this one, because I just learned about it just a few weeks ago. Lavangela oil called Silexin. It's a product in the UK, and I don't know yet if it's available in the United States, but it's from lavender. There's a beautiful field of lavender, and it smells, you know, you've smelled lavender. It's put in little um, things to put in your drawer to smell good. And lavender is a wonderful preparation, lavender oil, the essential oil for 
generalized anxiety disorder and sleep. And I read in a medical journal not too long ago that they put one drop of lavender oil on the pillows of elderly patients in a nursing home, and it actually promoted better sleep. They did a study on it. And I don't believe in box flower remedies. I believe that gets new agey, but we do know there are properties in eucalyptus oil smelling it, pine oil smelling it for uh, respiratory problems. So some of these essential oils are very powerful and do have a systemic effect. So I want to try about this lavender oil, I'm, I'm going to try it with my next insomniacs. I'm going to have them put a drop on each side of the pillow and see if it helps their sleep. But this was for nerves, for relief of anxiety disorder, and they have a preparation of 80 milligrams, which is equivalent to two drops of the essential lavender oil. And I'm going to see if we can find it here in the U.S. and try to use that. Now, among other things for anxiety, we use valerian, passion flower, chamomile, and um, there's a preparation called kava kava, which I don't recommend because that comes from overseas, New Zealand, Australia, somewhere over there. But it also has some toxic ingredients in it and has caused some liver damage in some patients. So there's lots of help in passion flower, um, hop, catnip, valerian. Even valerian can make some people anxious instead of doing the opposite, which it's supposed to have, do, is have a calming effect. And some, some references that I read, valerian is not good for long-term use, necessarily. So there's a lot we don't know about herbs yet. Now, uh, another one about this silexin appears to be an effective and well-tolerated alternative to benzodiazepines for amelioration of generalized anxiety. Elagic acid, you've got to know about elagic acid. It's so exciting. How many know about elagic acid? Ooh, good, this is good news then. Red raspberry and elagic acid diet showed a significant reduction of 59% and 48% respectively in endogenous DNA adducts. What does that mean? Endogenous DNA adducts. A DNA adduct is a DNA portion bound to a carcinogen. And they've done studies with red raspberries, with pomegranate, uh, walnuts, blackberries, blueberries, strawberries. Red raspberry is the most powerful source of elagic acid known to date. South Carolina, in South Carolina, the University of South Carolina, several years ago did a study, and I don't have it at my fingertips, I'm sorry, but they did a study with cancer patients, I believe it was cervical cancer if I'm not mistaken, with one cup of fresh raspberries or frozen every day for a year. And they found out that both in vivo and in vitro, elagic acid blocks DNA replication of cancer. And it's really um, an ongoing study. Actually, the University of Ohio has been studying ways to get small farmers to grow more berries, blackberries, raspberries, etc., to produce more elagic acid. Well, the interesting thing is that some studies were done with elagic acid in pills. And it's out there on the market. You can buy it in health food stores. But the pills are not as effective as the real food. So it doesn't matter if raspberries are cooked, frozen, raw, or whatever, or dried. The elagic acid is still there, and it is a potent remedy for cancer and even for um, some liver disease um, with 
for instance, toxicity from carbon tetrachloride. Studies are showing that ellagic acid present as elagitannins in whole berries is more bioavailable than an ellagic acid supplement. So use more raspberries and promote them among your patients. And that applies to pomegranate as well. A lot of ellagic acid is found in pomegranate. So we make a slushy for our cancer patients uh, for evening meal, have them drink one to two cups of one to two cups of raspberries mixed with four to eight ounces of concentrated pomegranate juice. And it's very good tasting and they enjoy it and we do this for our cancer patients. Now we don't have all the answers to cancer but that's one little clue. Miscellaneous remedies, curcumin is a powerful one. As I mentioned, here's a whole sheaf of things on curcumin, turmeric. The University of Texas at MD Anderson Center is doing a lot of research on curcumin. Don't think that some of these things are just, you know, something that uh, Wildwood or Yuchi Pines or Weimar are working with. Out there in the scientific world, there is a lot of research going on. It's a highly pleiotropic molecule capable of interacting with numerous molecular targets involved in inflammation. And it's potentially a therapeutic agent for inflammatory bowel disease, pancreatitis, arthritis, chronic anterior uveitis, and chemopreventative and chemotherapeutic. It's, they've had some success mixing a, an extract, a powerful extract of curcumin and black pepper. Now we know it's recommended in the Spirit of Prophecy that we not use black pepper, but this is an extract called piperine, which mixed together in an extract at MD Anderson, I believe it was, has been used to help some types of cancer. And uh, there's just so much research going on out there. Now, probiotics. Probiotics are these good bacteria. I have to explain to patients because they still don't understand what you mean. I say probiotics, nutribiotics, GI flora, gastrointestinal flora, good bugs that inhabit your intestines, which are wiped out with antibiotics, even some of the, the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And probiotics reduce the side effects from antibiotic usage, like bloating, diarrhea, taste disturbances. A certain percentage of probiotics will be disturbed or destroyed by hydrochloric acid in the stomach, but nonetheless, you still get a certain benefit. Long-term consumption of probiotics is considered safe and well-tolerated, and there is a lot of research. GERDs, reflux disease. The head of the bed elevation and left lateral decubitus position improved the overall time that the esophageal pH was less than four. In other words, the reflux was decreased. Weight loss and head of the bed elevation are effective lifestyle interventions for GERDs. Don't forget to tell your patients that. Some of these simple things, not just omeprazole or Zantac or Tagamet. And we have them put, we keep eight inch blocks that we put all of our GERDs patients on. And it's much better to elevate the head of the bed than to use pillows because by morning you're off the pillows and you're in a scrunched up position and you've got the GERDs again, but the eight inch blocks keep the acid from running uphill at night. Again with GERDs, all patients in group A, now this is an interest, interesting study about melatonin. Did you know there's more melatonin in the GI system, in the enteric system, there, than there is in the pineal gland that produces melatonin? And melatonin is an integral part of our GI um, 
physiology. All patients in group A that used um, a dietary supplement of melatonin, L-tryptophan, vitamin B6, folic acid, vitamin B12, methionine, and betaine, 176 patients, reported a complete regression of symptoms after 40 days of treatment. 65% of group B, which used omeprazole, showed regression of symptoms in the same period. In other words, the ones that used the natural remedies, a significant amount of people got help just using the natural remedies from the GERDs and healed up their esophagitis. A 64-year-old Caucasian female used melatonin, six milligrams, plus several of these natural supplements, and she actually um, got better. And the second option, she used uh, six milligrams plus natural su supplements. All other ingredients were withdrawn in 10 months follow-up with minimal symptoms. In other words, she got better, got well, with just the natural remedies. Why do complementary remedies sometimes fail? Several reasons. There are unnecessary complications due to people love to diagnose themselves and treat themselves. And maybe they didn't get the right diagnosis in the beginning. I had a patient that came to me and said, I've just done this very expensive herbal cleanse. I've done it for X number of weeks. He'd spent like almost $1,000 on this cleanse that someone sold him. And he was having consistent abdominal pain all the time and it hadn't gone away. And I did a thorough physical on him and guess what I found? I found an umbilical hernia that when he did certain positions, it popped out. He hadn't even noticed it. He needed surgery, and that would be the cure for his abdominal pain. So people really self-diagnose way too much, and yet the internet encourages that. Magazines encourage that. Misdiagnosis at initial consul consultation with alternative practitioners. I know of some practitioners not too far from Wildwood that told people, if you'll do this, dangle this thing in front of you, and this was a Seventh-day Adventist, unfortunately, dangle this string with a penny, you will eat this food, and if it doesn't go this way or if it doesn't go this way, you will not eat it. And this, this woman had a mass in her abdomen, and this was not investigated medically, and this mass got bigger and bigger, but you must eat the right foods depending on what I tell you to do, what this anything did. And the woman came to us. She had a huge mass. By then, she was inoperable with terminal cancer. And she had, this had been going on for probably over a year. It was very sad. I had another person come from the same practitioner. I won't say, because it was very, about 30 miles from Wildwood. And some person was practicing, quote, unquote, and doing similar things with this lady that had a mass on her leg, turned out to be a sarcoma and it ended up killing her. Because she was assured and assured and assured that she would get well with this lady's prescriptions. So we have to be very careful and encourage our patients, don't go to just any naturopathic or complementary and alternative practitioner because a lot of people do not know what they're talking about. They haven't studied the physiology involved. Mrs. White says when we understand physiology in its truest sense, we will be able to do away with more and more drugs. That means in its truest sense, not bogus stuff. Delaying or foregoing appropriate treatment in favor of ineffective unconventional treatment is dangerous. And yet, 
We teach people these natural remedies in natural remedy seminars to do a reasonable trial of natural remedies. And so there's such a balance in teaching people not to go too far, get medical help quite quickly if you don't get better within a few days. And in children, within a few hours, because children can go sour so fast. So we're trying to present a little balance here. We need to sort out herbal hyperbole from the herbal truth. Dr. James Duke is one of the world's most famous um, herbalists. He worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture over 30 years, did tremendous research in the uh, field of herbal medicine in the rainforest of the uh, Amazon and Panama, etc. And you can go to the James Duke database on the internet and find all kinds of interesting things about herbs. It's the biggest herbal database in the world. There's a book over there, several books I brought for you to look at, and one is called The Green Pharmacy by James Duke. And he wrote this for um, the prevention magazine people, Rodale, several years ago. The only thing I disagree with in that book is that you should have a little uh, wine or liquor every day, a little alcohol every day. Otherwise, James Duke is pretty straight. Ginkgo, ginkgo biloba leaf extract has a protective effect on red blood cells. On, other, on the other hand, high doses exhibited damage to the red blood cells. So caution with ginkgo. It can be very helpful for memory, um, for increasing or thinning the blood, and you have to be careful because it interacts with Coumadin or Warfarin, and there are a number of things that interact with Warfarin. You can't be too careful and just give herbs willy-nilly. You've got to know what interacts with drugs if you're using some drugs as well. Five herbal slimming products were evaluated for synthetic medications. And found that they had other drugs in them, like Ramonaban and Sibutramine, etc. Chinese herbal medicine is notorious for having lots of drugs found in it. They evaluated and they found all kinds of prescription drugs in Chinese herbal products in Chinatown, for instance, in San Francisco. Grapefruit seed extract, a word of caution, remember that your P450 system is affected by grapefruit, and so there's a grapefruit interaction with many drugs, and so you can't use that for some things. Only about 10% of St. John's wort product labels contain warnings regarding possible drug interactions, and it's known that St. John's wort interacts with some HIV medications, indinavir, for example, and uh, oral contraceptives, cyclosporin, and um, other medications, and can also cause a sunburn if you're out in the sun too much with St. John's wort. But yet it's very good for depression in some people. And it, we use it some. A, common, a German study, there's what's called German Commission E. It's a very good book, similar to our PDR. And anybody that's really into medicine should have the German Commission E book as well, because you can learn a lot from the Europeans who have done a lot more study into herbs than the Americans have. They studied over 4,000 patients prescribed at least 10 drugs each, and they found there were a lot of drug interactions called drug combinations prone to interact, DCPI um, interactions, drug combinations prone to interact. Many of these patients had herb-drug combinations going on because the patients don't tell the doctors and the doctors don't ask. 
A 49-year-old female physician presented with peripheral edema, weight gain, and relative hypertension, and it was found that she was eating a lot of licorice, licorice candy cigars. And I had a patient recently in our lifestyle program that had quite severe hypertension, and in getting a careful diet, herbal history, I found out that she was consuming huge amounts of licorice just because she liked it, licorice candy. And we stopped it, and on our lifestyle program, with some other herbs to help reduce it, and a salt-free diet, and some weight loss, she made wonderful strides in reducing her blood pressure in just a few days. It was amazing. Safety of complementary remedies. Accidental CAM intake in children. It's very common. And um, 1,015 accidental herbal intakes, 2,143 accidental homeopathic intakes, three of moderate severity, 28 of minor severity. All other accidental intakes evolved harmlessly without manifestations. So be sure you know what your patient's children are taking or what the parents are giving them. Now, here's a little section on wound healing with honey. It's marvelous. And there's two kinds of honey. There's table grade or pasture honey, and there's manuka honey. Manuka honey comes from the bees um, that make honey in New Zealand or Australia. And this manuka honey comes from the tea tree bush or the manuka bush in New Zealand or Australia. And there's been a lot of research on this. And indeed, just recently, I've had at least five patients in the last few months that have been healed with manuka honey. It's incredible. We, we're keeping it on hand now in our outpatient clinic. Me measurable medical errors cost the U.S. economy $19.5 billion in 2008. Pressure ulcers produced the largest error cost at about $3.9 billion per annum. The use of Manuka honey dressings, and you can buy these Manuka honey dressings now commercially. There's a name for them, but I didn't get it in here. It was associated with a statistically significant decrease in wound pH and a reduction in wound size. The Wound Care 18 Plus group, and Manuka is labeled 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 UMF. It's a measurement of Manuka honey units, and it, it, there's an abbreviation for it. Um, but it's called UMF, units, and the stronger ones are better for the wound healing. The Wound Care 18 Plus group had increased incidence of healing, effective desloughing, and a lower incidence of infection than control. After four weeks, 70% of honey wounds versus 16% of the hydrogel wounds had MRSA eradicated. And MRSA is a big thing in medicine today. Methicillin-resistant staph aureus? That's scary. And MRSA is eradicated by Manuka honey in many cases. And on the internet, there are pictures of these huge decubiti that were cleaned up with Manuka honey. Now, it can be diluted by tissue juices if it's not changed frequently, especially in large wounds. It has to be applied several times a day so that the tissue liquids don't dilute it way out and keep the pH going up because part of the secret of the Manuka honey is the pH, even in honey is the pH must be low. Manuka honey inhibits Staph aureus by targeting the cell division machinery. And you can buy Manuka honey on the internet. We, it's about $40 for a little bottle of about six or eight ounces. It's quite expensive, but very effective. And we dole it out in one ounce containers to the patients because they don't need that much to heal up a small wound. <clears throat> 
um, medical grade honey killed the following Bacillus subtilis, methicillin resistant Staph aureus, extended spectrum beta lactamase producing E. coli, ciprofloxacin resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and vancomycin resistant Enterococcus faecium. Manuka honey and pasture honey applied to skin at the insertion points of medical devices may have a role in the treatment of prevention of infections caused by coagulase negative staph. And related susceptibilities to Manuka honey in the test organisms during long-term stepwise resistance training were found, but these changes were not permanent and honey-resistant mutants were not detected, and that's important. If you're going to give antibiotics, people get resistant after a while and they're not finding these mutants yet in some studies with Manuka honey. The antibacterial activity of medical grade honey has been characterized for the first time, and this is exciting. They found that bees make a substance called bee defensin 1, and that's part of the active ingredient in the honey. And then there's peroxide and methyl glyoxal, and a pH of 3.3 is the minimal effect, and um, sugar. This is a wound on one of our own students at Wildwood that occurred a few weeks ago. On the 23rd of September, uh, just be actually several days before that, she had decided to shave her legs. And she had put um, some sort of very hot wax on her legs to get rid of the hair, shave them that way, and it burned her leg pretty bad. And she came to me with this deep ulcer, and we should have put a ruler there. It was like three by two centimeters with the subcutaneous tissue showing, the fat showing. And it was pretty ugly looking. And we started the Manuka honey. See the new rim of skin within one day? Within one day she had that new rim of skin. By the 29th it was closing in more slowly because the middle was very, very deep. And by the 12th of October it was totally healed over. And yeah, some people might say, well, maybe she needed a skin graft, but that will remodel itself after a few months and look quite normal. We were thrilled with that response. This is a lady that had um, several squamous cell carcinomas taken off her leg. She's an elderly lady with some dementia, and there were a couple little wounds that didn't heal quite well, and she kept scratching them and scratching them and picking the little scabs off. And they got infected, and there's an area of cellulitis all around here. We gave her a hot and cold leg bath at bedtime and started applying. We had a nurse go to her house on campus. This was on the 14th of September and had the nurse apply the Manuka honey three times a day and keep a dressing on so she wouldn't pick at it. And within a week that wound was almost completely closed and within another week it was totally closed. And this had been going on for two months before we saw it. And it, we were real thrilled that it just closed off very, very quickly. We had a young lady, one of our students, recently, now we're going to talk about upper respiratory infections just for a few minutes. 25-year-old black female, 241 pounds. She came to Wildwood to study, but she also needed to lose weight. She had a high fever, flu-like symptoms, short of breath, and her blood pressure was normal, 122 over 78, but her temperature was almost 105. And her saturation was 89% on room air, and we put her on oxygen. And she was allergic to penicillin. And we did a nasal swab, and it was positive for influenza A. And we treated her, and we checked for mycoplasma, and that was negative, and it was too expensive to check for H1N1. 
nasal culture was normal flora, so it was a viral infection. We gave her hydrotherapy, oxygen, herbs, and within just a few days, um, sorry, this girl was well. Out walking, she got fomentations to the chest and um, hot foot bath, fomentation to the back, two times a day, and the oxygen and a spare diet. Sister White says in cases of illness, especially infections, we should have a spare diet, not a heavy diet. And within a few days, she was well. 26-year-old white female, one of our workers, she was 12 or 13 weeks pregnant. She has endometriosis, she has Crohn's disease, and she came in with the flu. We thought it was the flu, and a, not a high fever, but feeling very, very miserable. Her saturation was 94%, the fetal heart tones were fine, but we admitted her to our hospital because she was quite sick and looked it and felt it. And a little bit tachycardic, temperature 100.3. And we admitted her on the 10th and discharged her on the 18th. We got an influenza A diagnosis with acute bronchitis and sinusitis, intrauterine pregnancy of 13 weeks. We treated her with several herbs, but you can't give many herbs in pregnancy. Echinacea and elderberry are two of the few herbs that you can use in pregnancy. So we were limited pretty much to hydrotherapy. And the Lord blessed, and she did fine. <clears throat> this young lady was 19 years old, 211 pounds, one of our students. She came in with several days of cough and high fevers, had even fainted a couple times in the girl's dorm. And her blood pressure was 110 over 78, temperature 103.1. Pulse 84, respiration is 24, and we actually um, diagnosed her with pneumonia, mycoplasma, probable mycoplasma pneumonia because her titer, her convalescent titer went up. And she had lingular pneumonia on the left, and um, later her mycoplasma IgM went up as well. And with simple herbs and hydrotherapy, IV fluids, and oxygen, she got well with no antibiotics. Now, we don't recommend that for all kinds of pneumonia. And God blessed, we've treated many pneumonias without antibiotics, but you've got to know what you're doing. And if it turns out to be certain types of bacterial pneumonias, we go ahead and use the antibiotics as well as the natural remedies, which was the case with my husband several years ago. The end of part one, enjoy your lunch, come back at two. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.